This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for an update on the markets and investing. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Doug Pita, Chief Strategist at BCA Research, formerly known as the Bank Credit Analyst. Welcome, Ben and Doug. I'm so glad to have you both on Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. So let's start with the economy, as we often do on Monday mornings. Doug, you have a pretty non-consensus view about the timing of a recession and a pretty rosy view about the U.S. consumer. So tell me what you see out there and why. Sure. We think that the U.S. consumer is in a robust enough position, both in terms of the excess savings that U.S. households still have from the pandemic fiscal transfers and from the foregone consumption while we were all social distancing, and had a much smaller range of consumption options than we ordinarily would. And the households are in a nice spot because they have robust income underpinned by a robust labor market. When we put those two things together, hearty income growth and flush consumers, we think that households will be able to consume at a rate across the rest of 2023 that is sufficient to stave off the beginning of the recession until sometime in the first half of next year. And the consensus view, it seems to me, is a recession in the second half of this year. Agreed. Uh, If you take the Bloomberg consensus as a good read on the consensus, as of today, Economists are calling for really weak 0.5% GDP growth in this quarter and then 0.5% GDP contraction in both the third quarter and the fourth quarter. That really sounds like a recession. And so, yes, I would say that the consensus either expects that a recession has already begun or that it is about to begin imminently. So the Fed has hiked rates for a 10th consecutive time at its main meeting, and the federal funds rate now sits in a range of 5% to 5.25%. Doug, tell me what your economic outlook suggests about prospect for future rate hikes. Well, I've been offering a more optimistic than consensus view about the strength of the consumer and therefore about the strength of the economy. Unfortunately, that means that I cannot be terribly rosy about the outlook for monetary policy. Good point. We believe at BCA that the Fed, while we believe the Fed is finished, that five to five and a quarter percent will be the peak Fed funds rate range. 
we do not think that there will be rate cuts in 2023. Okay? If I'm again, if I'm arguing that we've got a stronger economy than people realize, then rate cuts really won't be justified over the rest of the year. So while I'm arguing that we're headed for a positive economic surprise in the near term, I do think, on the other hand, there is going to have to be some disappointment for financial markets as investors price out the rate cuts that they have priced in for the rest of 2023. All right, we're going to get to the financial markets in a minute. But first, I want to go to Ben. We're going to hear from a batch of Fed officials this week, and there seems to be a decent amount of debate within the Fed about whether to keep hiking, to, excuse me, to tamp down inflation or to pause to give past rate hikes a time to work. So Ben, tell us what's driving this debate and how it might be influencing market expectations. Sure. So we've had actually a couple speakers. We had one this morning that was Jim Bullard, uh, who came out in favor of uh, two more hikes before pausing, um, which is a pretty out of consensus view for for this Fed. He's also a voting member, but the market reacted to that. Um, you see, in me Fed Watch, which uh, keeps track of the you know the the odds, um, other percentage chance of, of a hike at different meetings, uh, based on the Fed funds futures market. Uh, we saw there that uh, the odds of a pause in June fell to seventy two percent. Um, after he talked this morning um, versus 83% on Friday. Um, and that also followed comments, um, I think it was on Friday, from Neil Kashkari, who said that he's in favor of a pause at, in June, but uh, perhaps rate hikes after that. We're going to get three more Fed governors um, this uh, this week. We're going to get uh, Dallas Fed President Logan is going to speak on Tuesday, uh, Christopher Waller's on Wednesday, and then uh, we'll get Tom Barkin on Thursday. And, and the market's clearly listening to what it, they have to say, what these governors have to say about where rates are going to go, even if it's not having an immense uh, impact on the stock market itself. Um, and I think that's that is going to be the uh, the debate, as uh, you know, Doug mentioned, is when are they going to how long are they going to be able to stay on hold? How high do rates have to go and when can they start cutting? I think Lori Logan spoke last week and the market wasn't too crazy about what she did. That, that's right. I believe that's correct. So, all right, let's get back to the market. The market seems to agree with Doug that trouble is far in the distance, even though stocks are selling off today. But the market's had a pretty good year this year. Doug, where do you see things heading from here? We do think that the S&P 500 can get as high as 4,500 at some point this summer. So my team... Driven, you, driven by what? Driven by positive economic surprises as this consumption impulse forces the consensus to change its estimated time of arrival for the recession to delay that estimated time of arrival for another two, three, or four quarters. Additionally, it is my view that the marginal price center in public securities markets is the professional asset manager who is judged on his or her relative quarterly performance. And that as the expectations bar is lifted for economic growth and therefore for S&P 500 earnings growth, that these managers judged on their relative quarterly performance, how they're doing against the benchmark in the very near term are going to be forced to reallocate to equities. There are all sorts of polls that suggest that 
institutional investors are underweight equities relative to their typical positioning. So I would, I expect that managers who got prematurely defensive, proactively defensive, are going to be forced to reallocate back to equities, reallocate to more cyclically exposed stocks, and that that, in addition to the positive economic surprises, can push the S&P 500 up to the mid 4,000s. Now, I will, please let me hasten to add that once the S&P 500 gets to 4,500, my team will immediately go to equal weight equities and we'll be chomping at the bit for our opportunity to get underweight equities because we do think a recession is inevitable. And within that inevitable recession, beginning sometime in the first half of 2024, we think the S&P 500 will head back to around 3,600. And we would like to be underweight for that potential 20% decline from 4,500 to 3,600. But in the near term, we are positive. That's a lot of back and forth. When do we start the next big bull market? After the recession. After the recession oh, okay. and the Fed is beginning to attempt to nurse the economy back to health with easy monetary policy, when equity multiples have become more appealing in that decline to, say, 3,600. Sounds like we have a couple of very volatile years here. Yes, and I guess, Lauren, that that's a reasonable outcome given the remarkable events that we've experienced, right, with a, a once-in-a-century pandemic, with really remarkably large fiscal transfers. Right, right. So how should a fixed-income investor navigate all of this? We've spent a lot of time on equities, but let's talk for a moment about fixed income. I think a fixed income investor will have a better opportunity to really load up on fixed income and within the fixed income space to get exposure to longer duration securities. So right now, we would recommend within a fixed income portfolio being just benchmark duration and that if my optimistic scenario for the economy comes to pass, then I think you'll have an opportunity to buy the 10-year treasury with a 4% yield, as opposed to the you know, 3 and a half, 355, 360 yield where we've been around the last several days. So I would hold my fire as a fixed income investor in terms of going out the yield curve, but I do think there's going to be a fantastic opportunity to get exposure to 10-year treasuries uh, before too long, another few months. Okay, we will be watching. So I want to transit now to first quarter earnings. We're going to hear from a batch of retailers this week that will give us more insight into the consumer. Doug, I'm sure you'll be following that news. But let's take a look at some of the companies reporting this week. Ben is going to walk us through some of the bigger names and some of the smaller ones. Why don't we start with Lowe's, Ben, the home improvement chain? Yeah, Lowe's is an interesting one. It had a it's had a tough time since Home Depot reported last week because Home Depot's numbers were, uh, were, kind, were kind of tough. Uh, you know, they uh, really um, they, you know left investors wanting. It sold off. Lowe's sold off with it. Um, the interesting thing is going to be uh, there's always been a case as of Lowe's having um, has a different profile in this business, but also being more of a self help store than Home Depot. Home Depot was was very well run, had real problems. Lowe's um, just didn't have quite the same. Um, 
uh, it wasn't quite as well run. And that's been starting to change. And so I think one thing is going to be watching both uh, how the company is, uh, are they able to continue to sort of gain in those areas, but also the mix that it has. Um, Home Depot said that uh, DIY has been doing better than uh, the pro business. And for Lowe's, that actually might be a good thing because Lowe's is trying to get more pro business, but right now is still um, dominated by DIY, kind of the home, the person at home doing it themselves. Right, do it yourself, just defining it. Yep, and so that there's actually a possibility there that uh, there is a little more strength to Lowe's numbers than you might have in the the Home Depots uh, in the Home Depot numbers. The other thing that you have um, is that uh, Lowe's is actually a cheaper stock than Home Depots by about uh, three points, and so if Lowe's can come out with a decent number, if their margins are holding on pretty well, the stock could actually bounce back from this decline that it's had uh, since last week based on those uh, uh, Home Depot numbers. So how about Costco reporting on Thursday? Stock everyone loves, a company everyone loves. What's the outlook there? I'm not sure everyone loves it because the analyst community really is not excited about Costco. They always point out that it's too expensive, uh, it, and it is. It, it trades at 32 times earnings right now, which is well off its peaks, which were up close to, to 40, uh, I think, back in August, September. Um, but it's still, you know, it's pretty high relative to the market, which trades at around 18. Um, and it's going to have some headwinds to sales just based on prices of things like gasoline uh, falling. Um, but it's still a very strong business. Um, it has uh, some risk around discretionary. We saw when Target reported earnings that uh, discretionary sales uh, were, were falling off. Um, people are still spending a lot on things, on necessities, on food and, and whatnot. Um, and discretionary is p- about 27% of Costco's uh, sales. Um, uh, during its fiscal 2022. And so I think that's really what, what people are going to be watching. Um, and the stock, it's, it's actually interesting to look at the chart right now because the stock has not really moved in quite a while. It's been kind of just going in a straight line. Um, and and I think that it, it's going to need to show that uh, it can handle the, the falling inflation gas, that uh, there's still other ways for it to drive uh, other sales, and that food is still growing quite nicely because that's what helped Walmart uh, when it reported last week. For sure. Okay, Kohl's, more of a more of a soft goods seller. Yeah, Kohl's is it's scary. Um, you know, you, you take a take a look at the the chart on this on the stock, and um, you know, you, at first glance, you look at it and and you say, oh, you know, Kohl's, it's you know, it's it's down fifty percent over the last twelve months. Uh, it's down even this year. You know, hey, uh, how much more can it drop? Uh, you know, there's got to be a uh, um, you know, it's got to be a value here um, at these prices. And you look and you think, well, maybe not. Part of the problem is that, uh, you know, you, you look at what the, the analysts are expecting. They're um, expecting a, a loss of 44 cents um, a share. That would be down from um, a, a profit of 11 cents a year ago. Um, but we have UBS coming out and they're expecting a 15 cent miss um when uh Kohl's reports just the business has been that tough uh for it and so even though everybody hates this stock um it, it it's hard to see what is it going to do what kind of numbers is it going to report that would be good enough either to, to send it um send it shooting higher again or you know less bad um you know if uh, if these analysts are right that was still going to be very bad and it's hard to see what's going to be that catalyst to really send it uh, meaningfully higher over the you know medium term so here's an out of left field question if the stock is down 50 percent and companies really struggling 
could Coles at some point be a buyout candidate? Um, I, you know, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I think you have to look at these and think, uh, you know, we haven't seen people want to buy these struggling retailers. We've seen activists want to come in and right. try to turn them around. Um, but getting someone to buy them when their business is in such decline, I think, is is a pretty tough thing to do. Um, you know, I hate putting them in the same conversation, but you look at something like Bed Bath & Beyond, where they had um, such a good brand and nobody wanted to, you know, at one point they had such a good brand, but nobody wanted to step in, in there. So I think just Coles has to solve its problems. It has to figure out how to slow uh, the sales decline, how to get people uh, to, to really shop there again. I, that's a fair point. All right, let's talk about Best Buy for a moment. The stock's kind of flat over the past 12 months. Seems to be one of the last consumer electronics companies standing. What's the outlook there? Um, it's going to have a tough time because uh, people have, what we've seen in all the earnings so far is that people are buying less of these expensive discretionary items that uh, Best Buy sells, uh, the TVs uh, and things like that, the stereos. Um, what they do have going for them is this uh, membership program and they, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, they have the Geek Squad and things like that, and they're changing the tiers there. Um, and they're, that, that's going to be the thing that they're hoping is going to help boost margins. And, and it's something that they're hoping is going to, you know, provide a, a, a boost for them during periods when, you know, sales of these, these items are, are tough to uh, come by. And that's going to be something that uh, is going to be, I think people are going to really be paying attention to probably more than uh, just about anything. Because I think at this point, we know that um, the numbers are not going to be great. Um, if you look at the uh, consensus, uh, that you're seeing a profit of $1.11, that would be down from $1.57. Um, and there's just, uh, you know, we know that people aren't buying this stuff. And so they have to get through this and they also have to figure out how to get this, you know, hopefully the subscription revenue comes through and that provides a longer term outboost for the stock. So we had a question from Gabriel. Could you comment on Ulta Beauty, which is reporting this week? Sure. I mean, Ulta is an interesting one. It was actually a, a barren stock pick, and it hasn't done great since since we picked it. Um, and I think what people um, it, there's a lot of bearish sentiment around the stock right now. Um, you know, growth has slowed a little bit. Um, the stock is not cheap, um, and so you have uh, you know J.P. Morgan was commenting that hedge funds have actually become more bearish. Uh, they've been selling the stock a bit. Um, JP Morgan isn't worried. Um, they just they believe that uh, the earnings are going to keep growing, that the, uh, the the comparable sales are still strong enough that uh, after this kind of this drop that it's had recently, which has been about, uh, I think it's close to a, a, a 10 percent drop um, you know, over the past uh, few uh, about the past month or two. Um, but that's enough to to make the stock, um, you know, attractive here and be able to give it a bounce. But it, it really it's kind of a, a moment where the stock has fallen down to a support level. Um, it is cheaper than it was. Um, it was up at 550. Um, at that point, it was trading, you know, close to to try to get this right. Um, it was close to 22 uh, times earnings is now at about uh, 18 and a half times. Um, it's coming down to a 200 day moving average, but these are important support levels as well. And if uh, Ulta cannot deliver at this earnings um, report, there could be problems for it to the downside. Okay, that's a good synthesis of the situation. Ranjit asks, is there any retailer who is performing well and is considered a great buy at the moment? 
<laughs> I mean, the one that stands out, I, I'm not sure if it's it's a great buy. That's the, the problem. Um, the, the one that stands out to me is uh, Walmart. Um, that just seems to be doing uh, everything right. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it had uh, pretty good numbers. It did get a little bit of a bounce off those numbers, but it's pulled back since then. Um, and it looks like there is some uh, resistance uh, up around you know 155 or so for the stock. And and once again, it's not cheap. Um, it's now at uh, you know around 23 times, and these are really near um, kind of peak levels for for the stock. It was a bit higher. Um, I think uh, maybe uh, you know back in uh, October, November, it was it was a bit higher than this. Um, it's up around 26 times, but this this is pretty high for for Walmart, and so I think uh, that has to be a concern. So I'm hard pressed to identify a retailer I really want to be jumping into right at this moment. Okay, I, at least we have one answer there of of something that looks somewhat attractive. So. I want to move on to NVIDIA, which is also reporting this week. The company has been a star in so many things, and now it's a leader in AI, artificial intelligence, which has absolutely dazzled investors, even those who couldn't tell you what AI is. So let's take a look at NVIDIA's earnings and then at the way AI has been driving this market. Ben, you want to take us from there? Sure. I mean, it's... Uh... It's it's kind of amazing. The stock is actually going. It has gained one hundred and fourteen percent so far this year, um, which is. Incredible. I think I heard you right. Pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's one hundred fourteen percent. It's more than doubled. Um, its earnings this quarter are going to are expected to drop uh, to ninety one cents from a dollar thirty six. But obviously, this is not about um, Nvidia's current quarter earnings. Uh, this is about um, what uh, AI is going to, to mean for the stock. Um, the, the idea here is that, you know, that people, AI is very um, memory intensive. Um, you need powerful computers to really make it work and that'll mean more chips and their chips are very good for this. Um, and so I think what people are gonna have to wanna hear from NVIDIA after this move is how, right now, I think it's all about hope that uh, this translates into sales and earnings. And I think that uh, people are going to start to hear that some of that hope is turning into reality. Um, and so, you know, you look at people that everyone seems to be struggling with um, with that issue is just how much value is AI really going to add? Um, you know, is, is, it, is, is it really that, that enough to, to, um, to, to have the stock double in a few short months? Um, is it, and then the, the downside to it is, is it going to pull growth away from other areas of uh, IT spending? Um, and those questions are still up in the air. I know that when I see a stock gain this much, this quickly, um, I expect it to take a pause. So I, I think the numbers have to be pretty extraordinary to uh, for the stock to be able to keep rising after such an extraordinary move. Um, but hey, I'm, I've been wrong a lot of times before. So uh, we'll see what this market does. I mean, right now, everybody, as you said, all they want to do is own uh, big tech stocks and they want to own AI stocks. Um, and that could be a help to uh, NVIDIA when they report. So, Doug, market strategists or market technicians, rather, would call that concentration of ownership bad breath, meaning that the market is very narrow in terms of participation. A couple of big stocks are causing most of the moves. The great massive stocks isn't doing quite as much. How do you read the situation? It's certainly something investors have to keep an eye on 
but it's not preordained that the big winners that that this disparity is going to close that the breadth is going to widen by the winners coming down which seems to be what people just assume it, it is possible that the rest of the market can begin to perk up now while it's not going to see 114% year to date gains like Nvidia has it is possible the rest of the market can sort of get pulled into the big winners orbit and i do think it's an open question if the economy does surprise positively as i suggest that it is going to in second and third quarter across the summer and and into the early fall then you know we may well see this divergence narrow with the laggards beginning to post positive performance. And going back to AI, I have a question for Ben. Many people have piled into the big AI plays, but some analysts have pointed out, and even Barron's, our own Eric Savitz has pointed out, that there are plenty of other ways to play artificial intelligence besides NVIDIA and Microsoft, Google, and so forth. So give me a sense of what some of the other names are. I mean, there's some are going to be smaller chip companies. Um, some of it is uh, companies like, uh, you know, one is uh, this is coming from Needham, Needham but uh, Needham likes monolithic power systems, uh, which is going to have to power all these things. Um, and so I think that's where it uh, really comes from is you got to be thinking not just who's going to be making the, uh, the chips, but also um, who are the ones that are gonna be providing the services that make all this work. Um, and, and I think the other thing to, to think about is like looking at the businesses that um, people are going to, uh, that are gonna benefit from this. You know, we've already seen places like um, uh, IBM has announced that it's gonna be uh, uh, laying off some people in areas where um, they can, uh, where, where you can, let uh, AI do the trick. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Eric uh, had um, a story that looked at some of the plays, um, and you know, it include, they have a company like Micron. Um, they have a company I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Ticker is C R N C uh, Serence, which makes voice assisted products that's used in cars. Um, again, we mentioned monolithic power, but you have Vicor also. That's V I C R. That's another ma uh, power management stock. Um, and then you have uh, chips like Marvel, chip makers like Marvell um, and Credo Technology, that's CRDO. They do um, networking chips, and that's going to be a possible uh, beneficiary. Um, and so there's just lots of different uh, areas that are going to be seeing a, a boost from, from these kinds of, from the AI technology. I think it's, uh, you know, now that we've had sort of these obvious ones get out of the way, it's time to start digging a little more in to see uh, what other areas are going to get the benefit. To Doug's point, you don't have to wait for big names to fall. There's a way to lift up the smaller names. And you've just pointed to a couple of good ones. So I have a couple of questions from listeners that I want to pose to Doug. Martin asks, following your views on the U.S. economy and interest rates, what is your outlook, what is your outlook for the U.S. dollar? Broadly at BCA, you know, I say broadly at BCA because it's difficult to, to herd the BCA strategist cats to get them all going in the same direction. Same here at Barron's. But you know, there's a broad consensus at BCA 
that the dollar is going to decline in the intermediate term and the long term. Um, I would additionally you know, throw my two cents in. I would expect that if my economic view comes to pass, that the economy is stronger than expected. That implies that the global economy is going to be stronger than expected in the near term as well. And the dollar is a counter cyclical currency. I would submit that only the Swiss franc and the yen are more defensive than the US dollar. So that broadly, if the global economy is stronger than expected, I would expect more cyclically exposed currencies like the euro and several emerging market currencies and the developed market currencies that are more tied to resources like the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar, I would expect that those currencies would outperform the U.S. dollar and that I would expect that the near-term outperformance will come to a close, or excuse me, the near-term underperformance for the U.S. dollar will come to a close once we do near a recession and that you you have weakness globally, then that's going to attract funds to the world's reserve currency and to safe assets, assuming we settle the the debt food fight, uh, that you'll have money coming into the world's risk-free asset, U.S. Treasuries, and that that will act to boost the dollar. So in the very near term, while the economy surprises to the upside, I would expect that the dollar can continue to ease. I would expect that once we hit a recession, the dollar will get a boost. But then looking out in the intermediate term and the long term out, you know, three, four, five years, six to 10 years, I do think you're going to see the U.S. dollar weaken. Okay, but maintain its reserve currency status? I would think so simply because I don't see any other alternative out there. That's a good enough reason, isn't it? It's like democracy. It's the worst of all possible systems except for all the others. Right, 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 right. Okay, we have a question from Darian. When will the inverted interest rate curve normalize again? You know, again, I would say when you ask, you know, when do I really like equities? When should a longer term investor want to get involved? I would say that that comes once we have the recession and the Fed is doing its level best to nurse the economy back to health. When that happens, the number one tool in the Fed's toolkit is to lower the Fed funds rate. If you lower the Fed funds rate to your yields, which is the part of the curve that's most sensitive to Fed funds rate expectations, will fall. And eventually, markets will begin to price in better days ahead and even potentially some inflation coming with those better days ahead. And you will see yields at the longer end of the curve rise. So I don't expect that we're going to see an upward sloping yield curve until sometime in late in the first half of 2024, once you have rate cuts beginning to filter through and eventually the bond market begins to say, hey, you know, when I look out over the horizon, I do see better days ahead. I do see better growth. I see, you know, inflation again. And therefore, that's when long yields will rise. All right. Maybe one or two more questions. I'm going to turn to Ben now. We had a question about Boeing in the short and long term. What are your thoughts there from Robob? Um, I mean, Boeing has been a very strong stock, um, and 
I think it's surprised Al a little bit who covers it, um, but it's, it's really about the recovery of the airline business and uh, people uh, buying uh, new planes. I do worry that the, the the biggest thing there is that I'm not sure management is really up to the challenge that it has. Um, you keep running issues with planes and the manufacturing side of things. Um, and, and Al has, uh, who's, who's our real expert on this, Al Root, um, has some complaints uh, about that, that, uh, you know, you just need a, a manager who's focused on uh, bringing in the top engineers and really thinking about where planes are going, and he's not sure they have that. Um, and so we've seen the stock, uh, you know, it rallied uh, pretty solidly from uh, the October low, um, but it's been going kind of sideways almost all year. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if we could just continue to see that happening for a while as you people wait to see, you know, what's going to happen with the economy, uh, how real is this turnaround that we're seeing in people buying jets and those kind of things. All right. Also a question from Richard about Total Energies. This was mentioned in our energy roundtable. You want to know what and, the public is? No, and I think uh, the, the roundtable liked uh, Total. So we, we had this uh, period where the U.S. Uh, majors were kind of in favor. Um, they were seen as sort of uh, oil pure plays. Um, and that's what really people wanted is uh, oil uh, prices shot higher. And, um, you know, there were there were shortages because of the Ukraine-Russia war. Um, I, I, what the, the roundtable talked about is just how, you know, you with the, these European ones uh, like Total, you do get both that energy business, the oil, the traditional oil business. Um, but you're also getting a play on um, some of the uh, uh, some of the new energy technologies as well. Um, and, and the stock is is pretty cheap. If I'm reading this correctly, it's trading about six times uh, 12 month forward earnings. Um, so it is not expensive. Uh, again, it's uh, not done a lot uh, really since December, um, as oil prices have you know been pretty volatile. But uh, if, if our energy roundtable members are right, it's, it's a pretty decent stock uh, here. I thought it was interesting. Speaking of energy, today's news about Exxon, which is making a bet on lithium. Speaking. Of of diverging from a pure play in oil. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting that they're they're trying to do that, and it's more in line with what they are good at, which is, you know, mineral resources. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I think on that level, it makes sense. It's still a very small um, deal on their part. So I, I see this as more as the kind of thing where they're like, okay, let's, let's just, uh, you know, dip our toe in. And, uh, and and see where this goes more than anything that's going to meaningfully move the needle for them in the uh, short term. Okay, that's that would be my my thought too. So I want to circle back for one moment to the debt ceiling. I think the president is meeting again with Kevin McCarthy. The D-Day for running out of money is coming close. How, Doug, do you expect this to work out? And how do you think the market will react in the event of a deal and in the event of no deal? Since I believe that the market's overwhelming expectation is that there will be a deal, I don't think that we'll see that much of a reaction if we do get a deal. I would think that the outlines of a deal, there will be something to allow both sides to save face, that the administration will concede on some spending but nothing that is terribly important, nothing that the administration believes will materially imperil its prospects in November of 2024, but something that the House 
side can can take back to its constituency and say, hey, you know, we got we got we drove down spending. This was important. I'm sorry we put the you know we had to put everyone through some anxiety to get these changes, but we got the changes. You know, and on the other side, the administration, the Democrats will be able to say, hey, you know, we were willing to talk to the other side, but we did not concede on anything that we think is very, very important. So basically, I, I think we're just going to see you know, a, a lot of sound bites on cable TV. Uh, you know, to, to Shakespeare, a lot of sound and fury signifying. <laughs> it is a little Shakespearean at this point. <laughs> or melodramatic, I should say. Well, certainly it'll be a tragedy if we don't reach yes. it. <laughs> that's that's fair. There's no comedy here. And Ben, what do you think? Let's say the that the parties do come to a deal, as Doug suggests. Do you think the market will rejoice? Um, I, I think it depends uh, on you know what the market, how the market has reacted leading up to the deal. Um, one area that I've, I've heard a lot of talk about, uh, perhaps doing well, are you know some of these cyclical stocks, economically sensitive companies like industrials could uh, possibly do well if you know people were worried that the debt ceiling would uh, um, cause a, a recession. Um, while some of the safe plays, uh, which I think big tech is probably included in, um, could uh, you know could, could get it could get hit by it. Um, I think that it also depends on what kind of deal. If there's too many spending cuts. Um, you know that could uh, that could actually be bad news um, if that's the kind of deal that uh, gets agreed to. And there's also a little bit of concern. I don't know how real this is, and maybe Doug has thoughts. Um, just that uh, you know the the uh, treasury will have to come out and start uh, issuing a massive amount of uh, of debt to sort of uh, restock the coffers, if you will. Um, and that could uh, suck some money out of uh, other areas and maybe uh, add, add a little weakness to the to the uh, market. Um, but uh, so I don't think it's guaranteed that the deal is going to send stocks higher. Um, I think it just uh, will depend on the deal itself. Got it. Okay. We have a lot to listen for in the next couple of days there. So we'll call it a day today. I want to thank you, Doug, for joining us. And thank you, as always, Ben, for being on the call. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, the topic is small cap stocks. They have really suffered this year, but the good news for investors is that the weakness has left the sector looking especially cheap. Barron senior writer Lauren Foster will talk with George Smith and Christopher Pearson, co-managers of the top-performing Davenport Small Cap Focus Fund, on what they look for in companies and which small cap stocks they're most excited about. Thanks again, everyone, and stay well. Have a good day.